This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of Ghosted, an American story, written and narrated by New York Times best-selling ghostwriter Nancy French, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Dynamic voices for a diverse church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic, Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church, powered by the Reformed African American Network. We're so excited that you guys are with us. Glad that you could listen in for this episode. Again, we want you to subscribe to us on iTunes. If you have found the podcast to be helpful, rate and review us. That gets us in front of other eyes and it pushes the podcast forward. You can also subscribe to us on the Satchel app as well. That was created and put together by our excellent producer, Bo York, and he'll probably come on and talk about that in the coming days as well. Uh, we have Jamar Tisby on the line. Jamar, how are you? Man, I'm, I'm, I'm doing well. And I got to say, I've been really enjoying the podcast lately. I enjoy them all the time, but getting a chance to sort of interact with listeners and their questions and their feedback and pushback and affirmations, that's, sure. that's the fun part of the job. So I hope folks keep it coming. Yeah, I we just want to say at the beginning, the positive feedback that we've received has been incredibly encouraging. Um, it's been something that that I personally have appreciated because Jamar and I were talking before the podcast that these types of conversations are typically closed door conversations. So putting them out, I, I don't know about you, Jamar, but for me, last week there was a bit of anxiety when the when the <laughs> when the podcast was getting ready to be posted, just simply because I know that these are sensitive issues and maybe the interaction that people have had with those sensitive issues may have been negative or may have been um, uncharitable or ungracious. So trying to communicate it in a gracious way with all that baggage that the term typically carries is something that I'm concerned about. And it was something that I wanted to make sure that we properly articulated. And uh, I think most people got it. I think so. I think so. I mean, it's, it, you know, so we've, we, we discussed last time we discussed the concept of white privilege, which is a loaded term for a lot of people already. And then the week before, uh, we were, what we were talking about the week before systemic racism. We start talked about systemic racism. So nothing controversial at all. Just no, light, no, light, no, light and no, easy no. topics. <laughs> easy stuff, you know, like casual Saturday afternoon you conversation. You know, just chit chat. But that's the point, right? We want to, we don't want to necessarily avoid the controversial topics. We want to dive in, hopefully, with a uh, Christian perspective, not the Christian perspective, but wade into those, those difficult conversations that maybe you don't have with your pastor or other church members, but as believers, we still need to think through and contend with. So, you know, I, I, I hope it's yeah. helpful for some and it's certainly been helpful for me. I thought the way you handled um, the white privilege dialogue was was very gracious and, and well informed. So I appreciate you wading into that. No, I appreciate you dealing with systemic racism. I also want to make it clear that we didn't just decide to come up with these episodes on our own, that this is direct response to listener questions. So that's very important. I mean, we're not trying to push any sort of um, ideology down your throat as far as what you're supposed to use and, and how you're supposed to say it. Um, that's why I really kind of punted at the end of last week's episode, um, which I'll leave you in suspense on if you haven't heard it, <laughs> but it was a direct response to just some, some Twitter questions that we received 
um, from a particular listener. And we have received some really great feedback that we do intend to discuss today as well. I just want to give some shout outs to some people who have given us positive comments. And these are not by any stretch of the imagination, the only positive comments we have received. Um, so I know there's some people listening who have interacted with us on Twitter or on other social media forums. And have also contacted us privately via inbox or text message. We appreciate those as well. Uh, but I just wanted to highlight one in particular on our RAND Network Facebook page. And her name is Kelly, I believe I'm saying this right, Kelly DePace. And if I'm pronouncing your name uh, incorrectly, I apologize. But uh, this comment really encouraged me, Jamar. She said, I've been reading some RAND articles the past few weeks but this is the first podcast I listened to. I learned so much and I'm very thankful as talking and thinking and praying about these issues often leaves me feeling a bit lost and hopeless. I really appreciate the gospel encouragement at the end. That's why we do it. Yeah. Um, we do it so that you can be encouraged so that you can be uplifted so that you can be spurred on and motivated to live life uh, with the mentality of racial reconciliation to properly articulate the gospel to your neighbors um, and to ensure that there are no blind spots um, or as few as possible. We know that we'll always have blind spots to a certain extent, but to limit our blind spots so that we can be the most effective ambassadors for the cause of Christ. Also want to shout out someone who lives locally, um, Ann Polson, who commented on my Facebook post. She said, I've read some of the Invisible Knapsack Watch the blue eye, brown eye experiment and listen to many talk on this subject. This was by far the best discussion I've heard. Very thankful for you and, and uh, thankful, thankful for you leaving that comment. That is very encouraging to us. Um, okay. So Jamar, I want to get into some of these Twitter questions. All right. You ready? <laughs> now, <laughs> these are positive questions. These are just people, you know, getting some thoughts and some ideas. And as a matter of fact, hold up before that, let's talk about the pushback. Just in general, in general, talking about the pushback. Um, listen, I'll say this before I kick it to Jamar. We expected it. Um, and, <laughs> That's good. And we do. We, we expect the pushback and there's nothing wrong with pushback. If there's one thing I, I try to make very clear and I want to continue to make very clear, it's that I am not above critique. <laughs> Jamar does not feel that he is above critique. Um, we're wide open to that. We want an interactive experience here on Pass the Mic. So if you push back, if there's some feedback, if there's some questions, um, all these things are welcome. Send them, send them our way. Post them publicly. We do not mind you posting them publicly at all. Um, now, we do want to be properly represented, and we do want for you to actually interact with what we said on the podcast, um, not just simply what you may have heard on Twitter, not just what you know you think people say in college campuses or what they have said or liberal ideology, we're dealing with what we specifically said on the podcast. So if you have something that we specifically said, we're wide open to that critique and pushback. Jamar. Absolutely. We, we, we did expect it. Um, and we do welcome it, like like you said. And so it's not it's not to shut it. Down. There's no party line, right? That that, that you need to very tell. important. Um, and, and so, especially if you comment on on Facebook or something, uh, there there might be it might be a clear consensus of opinion among many commentators. So that when you post your comment and it's a little bit different than what others are posting. Others might come back and, and argue their point. Well, that doesn't mean that Rand is saying, here's the party line. And, you know, the moment you step out of it, they're going to get you. 
No, we're we're not the voice. We're the microphone. And so yes. if others want to get on there and express their opinions, even if many people share the same opinion, that doesn't mean that we're trying to say that this is the right thing uh, to do, even though we as individuals may – we do. We have certain stances and takes on the issues, which you can hear in our podcast. You can read in our individual posts. But I just, I just want to put that constant reminder out there that we're not saying that if you are an African-American who's reformed, this is how you should think. That's uh, that's that's not at yes. all our intention. Yeah, we've and and I've seen some comments before on on previous posts a while back that would say, "Hey, well, you wouldn't interact with this person because you know he doesn't believe like you believe," or and that, that's just not the case. Yeah, um, at all. I don't yeah, really we, interact with trolls. Right, right. So so we don't <laughs> we don't interact with people who are consistently uncharitable towards um, our position, and and the reason is. Simply because, you know, we're not making anyone read our page. You know, there there are probably dozens and dozens of pages that you can access that will give you the perspective that <laughs> you're looking for. Um, if you're you're coming from a certain perspective, and I don't want to make it seem like like we have cornered the market on this area, um, or that because we call ourselves a Reformed African American Network, that this is the voice for all. Reformed African Americans, as Jamar was saying, that's not the case. Um, but if there may be some some better outlets for you to view, and and we totally understand that, we know that it may not be for everyone. Um, we encourage you to keep coming back because our goal is not to confirm anyone's bias. We don't want to. We don't want you to come in and and just hear what you want to hear. That's why I'm pushing back on certain um, thoughts related to the memes that I saw last week and pushing back to the application of how we use white privilege or how we use systemic racism or if we should use them in certain contexts. So I want to make that clear that we're we're not we're not coming here because we have the stock agenda of, you know, leftist ideology, uh, <laughs> as has been said, or I, I you know, we just don't. You and know. um and we're very we're 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 much more dynamic and complex than that. And so we want the podcast to reflect that. And if that's something that you're interested in, then we encourage you to continue listening and interacting with us because I think there's opportunities for growth. And we need to do a, a podcast on that, how how like left and liberal and progressive <laughs> have become these horrible words within so, Christianity. <laughs> so here's here's the interesting thing. We are going to touch on that right now. I want to I want to this a perfect segue. OK. That we received a listener comment um, on Twitter, and uh, her name is Miss Micah Rose on um, on Twitter. That's her Twitter handle. Thank you so much for uh, the follow and for interacting with us. So she said, listening to Pastor Mike and heard the term liberal used as a pejorative, what's wrong with being liberal in Christian circles? Hashtag help. Um, so when I interacted with her, I just simply said that the idea of being liberal is most often associated with marriage equality and a, a pro-choice abortion stance. So not saying that that's the reality of the term, but a lot of people associate liberal with those stances. So in, in using the term, I want to make sure that people understand the term for what it is and, and don't discard us if they think that we're coming from a, a liberal quote unquote or democratic stance. And I don't know if that makes sense, Jamar. Yeah, it, it's so we load these these terms with with all kinds of, of baggage. And uh, 
I don't know what somebody else hearing that word liberal or I sometimes say progressive as opposed to conservative or traditional. I don't know what people are hearing when they hear those words. And I think we all hear slightly different things. I do know that in Christian circles, it has been my experience that liberal and progressive are pejorative because they do, like you you said, talk about uh, marriage equality and the acceptance of of homosexual uh, lifestyle and practice, uh, those kinds of things which would sort of unroot, uproot uh, uh, the Bible as the foundation of Mm -hmm. our life view, or at least take a quote-unquote liberal view of the Bible as authoritative uh, word from God. And so I think the way I sort of try to qualify it is maybe by adding adjectives to them. You know, there's theological liberalism, there's social liberalism, and so, so what exactly are we talking about? You know, there could be political uh, liberalism or conservatism. And what exactly are we talking about? So for me, when I use those terms, I, I try to make clear, A, what realm am I talking about? Political, social, theological, whatever it might right. be. And then B, I also try to make clear this is, this is how People often interpret it, but not necessarily how I would interpret it, because I don't think right. they're bad words. Um, I think we should be yeah. traditional and conservative in some areas. I think we should be progressive and liberal in other areas. So uh, I don't think I don't think any Christian, if we're actually following the word of God, can be labeled or categorized very easily into any of those camps, however you define them. Yeah, Dr. Carl Ellis talks about this. Um, in a recent lecture that I heard him, um, he was speaking at at an event, and he talked about the difference between liberal and progressive, between conservative and you know right wing or like extreme or mm-hmm. libertarian. Um, and not to say that libertarianism is bad, just the way that the context of those those terminologies has come, that there's different degrees, and we lump in everyone who is you know, who would believe in, you know, a Democratic Party platform or would vote Democrat as liberal and progressive. And we're using those terms to mean things that they don't really necessarily mean. Mm-hmm. Um, so they don't necessarily mean that you think in all this, in, in you, there's this cloud and you believe everything that's in that cloud. Or you believe everything that's on that agenda, much in the same way that we would say as someone who votes Republican or is a conservative in political ideology they don't believe every single thing that's on the conservative party platform or agree with it. So, um, yeah, I think it's a much more complex term and complex usage. And, uh, so we, we interacted at first. I didn't know if she was maybe offended that we use that term, um, as in that way, but, uh, it, it was soon, soon. She, I think she understood what we're, where we're coming from. So thank you so much for listening. Miss Micah Rose, continue listening, um, and interacting with us. Also, we had someone else who named Christina, and she is at C Dizzo um, on Twitter. That's a really cool name, really cool uh, Twitter handle. And so she said, I would love to hear your guys' thoughts of Ta-Nehisi Coates' book, Between the World and Me, on the podcast. Now, have we talked about Between the World and Me yet? We have Jamar? not. We're behind man, on that my one. my bad, man. My <laughs> bad. You know, what's funny is I, I was going to include on my top five list, but I thought that would be really, um, really predictable. 
So I said, ah, let me let me take it off my top five list at the end of the year last year. So <laughs> yeah, well, so have you read Between the World and Me? I've read half of it. I'm reading okay. a lot. It's a hard read. <laughs> it is a hard read. It's an emotional read. That's what I've gotten so far is this is not, I don't know. I don't know. I think some people could probably read it and because it's distant from their personal experience, it's more kind of an abstract, interesting, you know, perspective type of thing. For me, this book falls in the category with a lot of other uh, art forms that are coming out late lately, whether that's movies like uh, the Butler or, or Django or, or anything along those lines, Selma um, or God, a book like this. I mean, it's just, uh, <laughs> uh. it's hard to watch because it is, it is so visceral and personal. And, um, and that's what Coates's book is like for me. And a lot of folks have compared him to, uh, uh, James Baldwin uh, type of thing and that kind of a voice of this generation. I I, I think you got to accumulate a bigger body of work, but he's certainly uh, tapping into a spirit of, of this age around uh, the angst and anxiety about race. What did you think? Yeah. So I've, I have read the book and I've actually written um, about the book um, just a little bit of very brief uh, thoughts on the book. I like it. And for those of you who, who don't interact with Ta-Nehisi Coates, he is, um, I think he's an editor, I think a senior editor or something like that for The Atlantic. And so he writes frequently for them. He's also, interestingly enough, which you guys will find very interesting, um, the writer for the new Black Panther comic book series. So, you know, <laughs> Bo and I are going to have lots of thoughts on that here on the podcast uh, to come. Uh, but so Between the World and Me is not an academic book. So it's not a book. It, I mean, there are maybe some statistics here and there, but it's mainly a narrative. It's a letter written to his son. So he's talking to his son about some key things he has to remember as he inhabits what Coates would say is this black body in America. How do you inhabit a black body, you know, in the United States? So for me, I read it in a different way than what I would read. Um, an academic work like The New Jim Crow or Just Mercy or something of that nature. Um, I read it much more narratively um, and it was powerful. It was very difficult because a lot of the things that he was saying were things that I can personally identify with, not in his context, so not in the intensity of his context, but in the way that people feel or the way that you feel your body is not your own. I, he says it repeatedly. I I lost my body, or I feel like my body is not doesn't belong to me. It belongs to the person who is calling me the N word, or belongs to law enforcement, or belongs to you know the person who would intend to inflict me harm of any ethnic identity. So that's both black and white, um, or or any other ethnic identity that he encountered, you know, in his time in Baltimore. So. It was very hard for me to read because I felt the emotion leap off the page. Now, as far as other people, I'm of the mind that while we should be discerning about what we read, I kind of think there's a lot of things that we should read that we avoid reading. So so we avoid reading things that expressly disagree with our worldview. Um, and Jamar, you mentioned something earlier, you know, prior to the podcast about the idea that we avoid hearing voices that 
don't agree with us on very important but select few issues, social issues. Mm -hmm. And so we tend to discard them when it comes to issues of ethnicity or issues of, it could be economics or foreign policy or whatever it may be. So we tend to discard them because they're not quote unquote our voices or they don't reflect our view on these certain things. And I would recommend highly that you pick up this book to, to understand and to feel and to wrestle with that tension is so vital. The empathy, the empathy that you have to feel that you can't necessarily you know, stir up and conjure up on your own, but that empathy that you have to feel interacting with someone's story and pursuing it and then coming into it and saying, that's my neighbor. And are there neighbors closer to me that have felt that way? I think it is very powerful and essential for you to read for that reason. So that, that empathy piece is so vital and so crucial. And that's what these stories do, whether you I mean, how do you disagree with someone's experience? It happened <laughs> and they feel that way. Right. But, you know, whether whether you can closely identify with that or not, I think it does help us to feel empathetic towards others and what they've been through. And I think for Christians, that should be a paramount concern is even though this may not be my physical neighbor, how do I love my fellow human being and my fellow image bearer better given where they are and what they're going through? And, 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 and for the folks who, who sort of kind of dismiss this book out of hand without giving it a reading or without considering it, I think it dovetails into the conversation we're having about progressivism and liberalism. Because if you've heard a trusted voice, a pastor, a theologian, an author, whomever say that this book is bad or this, this person is on the left side of, of where Christians quote unquote ought to be, then I think some people wouldn't even give this consideration, which to your point, right. Tyler, I think that's a, it's, it's a mistake. I mean, the reason why we have such strong beliefs isn't so that we can retreat into our corners. It's so that we can be bold and confident when we are in the world, but not of the world. And so we know our boundaries. We know this is an idea that coheres with the biblical narrative. This is an idea that doesn't, but I don't need to be afraid of coming in contact with it because I do know what I believe in the one in whom I have believed. So to me, you know, that's the power of, of knowing your Bible well, particularly Reformed theology, is that I can wade into these discussions with people I disagree with and not be scared that I'm going to somehow be tainted. Not that you don't always have to be conscious and on your guard and filtering, but I do have a filter. I have a grid. And so I think right. that should, I think that should encourage us to interact with these things. And then the last thing I'll say about the book is I think it's critical that you mentioned how you read the book narratively. Because yeah. that's that's one thing that I believe that Christians, especially in the, these reformed branches of Christianity, need to get better at. We're really good at reading theology. We're really good. Careful, Jamar. Careful, Jamar. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. <laughs> it, it, it bleeds into all these things. We're really good when it's in a book or a tome. We're really good when it's in an academic setting with interacting and engaging with ideas with understanding yeah, when, them when it's systematic when, and when there's system. clear solutions exactly and... and and when it's codified and and so but what we're not good at is this experiential theology this idea that it's lived theology and so how do you explain the fact that the person with you know an 8th grade or lower education 
who has been through life but can spit biblical wisdom like no other and doesn't have any formal background, doesn't go to a church that you would go to, where does that come from? Well, number one, it's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which every believer has no matter what sort of academic background they have in theology. And number two, there is something to be said for living life, especially life with hardship and suffering. And so that's what I would encourage readers to, to, to think about as they're reading a book like Between the World and Me or so many others that are talking about race, ethnicity, poverty in this country. Don't just read it as an academic exercise. Read it as someone's lived theology. Now, it could be good theology or it could be bad theology, but right, definitely. there's something to learn from it. And we got to get better as Christians and reform folks in understanding there are two sides to this coin, right? They're like uh, Carl Ellis talks about the cognitive and epistemological side of theology, which you know, we're, we, we, we tend toward in, in, in the West and, and in Reformed theology, but the flip side is the, uh, ethical and intuitive side of theology, jazz theology that, that comes through living life and learning from it, um, under the sight of God and, and with God, uh, crafting you and shaping you and refining you. So I think we have a lot to learn from, from what people are living through. You might want to check your mic, Jamar. That thing is smoking. It's smoking, man. That was hot. I love it. Awesome. So, okay. So transitioning now into briefly what we're going to talk about today as a major topic, and that's the term implicit bias. And so I was looking up things about implicit bias, but then I thought, you know what? We have an <laughs> expert on implicit bias who has given lectures and talks about it right here on the podcast. So, Man. Jamar, I know you just came off that fire rant and um, you're still recovering <laughs> and our ears are still recovering. But give us some idea of what is implicit bias. So when you say implicit bias, what is that and, and how is that typically expressed? I think the phrase itself is eloquent. Implicit bias says a lot. Um, but here's a definition I often use that, that comes from, you know, another source. But it says the attitudes or stereotypes that affect our understanding, actions, and decisions in an unconscious manner. The attitudes or stereotypes that affect our understanding, actions, mm-hmm. and decisions in an unconscious manner. So, so, so. Number one, it, it's an attitude. It's sort of a posture, um, if you will. And so it, it's part of your worldview. Uh, it's, it's, it's more than just about minor things. It pervades lots of different judgments that you have, attitude or a stereotype. It affects our understanding. That's, that, that verb affect means it has an impact. So this is not simply a benign belief that you hold. No, it actually, it actually has an impact on how you speak to people, what what further judgments you make about them, your initial impressions, all of that. Mm-hmm. And then um, in an unconscious manner, that's the critical part. Implicit bias, it's implicit. It, it, it happens at a subconscious level. We don't know we're doing it. And that's what's dangerous about implicit bias is that you're not conscious of the stereotypes or the attitudes that you have. And you're not conscious about how it's affecting your behavior towards that person or group of people um, mm-hmm. to whom you have the bias. Um, so 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 that's that's kind of the definition in a nutshell. 
Uh, there are a couple of quotes I thought are, are helpful. One is by Howard J. Ross, who wrote the book Everyday Bias. He said, this is one of the most insidious things about bias. People may absorb these things without knowing them. They absorb it. It's just in the air. And here's another right. one by a guy named Mazarin Banaji. And he says, you don't choose to make positive associations with the dominant group, but you are required to. All around you, that group is being paired with good things. You open the newspaper and you turn on the television and you can't escape it. So mm. if we're talking about race and implicit bias, who is the dominant group? I, mean, I think both numerically and culturally, you have to say people who are identified as white. They're 61, 62 percent of the total population right now. And so they're in the majority for the time being. But also, if you look at who is hold held positions of political power, economic power, social power, uh, certainly it's concentrated among this particular race. And, and we're not, and we're not saying that's necessarily a bad thing. Right. That's just it, it is what it is. It is what it is. And so what happens is, and this would be true even if the dominant group was African American or some other group. It's just the dynamics of of majority, minority, dominant, subdominant type of thing. So it's not inherent to someone being white or something like that. But what happens is that dominant group usually has positive things associated with it. So a real easy example is images of beauty traditionally huge in, huge example yeah, please get into this in our culture the the sort of ideal image of beauty is is a european image um whether that's male or female and so and so that would include straight hair slender body thin lips fine nose all those kinds of things that are associated with european ancestry, um, European features. And so there's a positive bias towards that. That's what you see in, in the in, in magazines and music videos and television and, and movies. That's the image so many women aspire to or um, or men in the case of, of, of male standards of beauty. That's what you aspire to because that's what's positive. And then the the implicit part of that is for any other group that might have different ethnic features, it's seen in a negative light. So, so right. thicker lips, rounded nose, kinky hair, curves on your body, whatever it might be, that's seen as a negative. And so you have an implicit bias against those kinds of features, even though they're very beautiful. Um, and you right. have this bias yeah. toward the dominant. A perfect example of this. Is I don't know if you heard about the Nina Simone movie. Have you have you heard about the mm -hmm. that some the movie? So Zoe Saldana is starring um, this classic figure of music and this representation of struggle and of triumph, and they basically have her in blackface. So <laughs> they have, if you look at the trailer, they have taken her complexion and Zoe Saldana. I don't know how to say it. Just if it's Saldana or Saldana, um, I'm sorry if I'm, I'm pronouncing it wrong. I'm just going to choose Saldana. So Zoe Saldana is very much so lighter skinned, and and for some reason they chose her for this role, and they packed on very noticeably dark makeup so that her complexion has has darkened a little bit, but not fully to the tint or shade of, of how Nina Simone actually looked. 
And so people were asking, why, why did you choose her and then basically place her in, in blackface when you could have chosen an actress who was a bit more darker skinned? Mm-hmm. Um, now, to her credit, you know, Zoe did say that she believes that this wasn't the movie that Nina Simone deserved or her family deserved and that she was outside of some of the creative decisions and choices. So it's not necessarily knocking her. But it's just a tangible representation of maybe how, you know, people take lighter skin or certain features and elevate them above someone else and then thus give them opportunities that they wouldn't have otherwise. And and there are many other examples. Um, so so height, height is a big one. I am uh, not very tall. And so mm-hmm. I deal with this personally a lot. And there's been studies that show whether you're looking at presidents or CEOs, they're often over six feet tall, a lot of times over six feet, two inches tall, which if you look at just men as a proportion of the population, those who are over six feet or six feet, two, even it's a very small percentage of the population. Yet there's a disproportionately high number of those men who are in leadership positions. Now, of course, right. it's not just because they're tall. There are many different factors, but there is a bias because you, you see a, a tall male and you think power leadership type of thing, especially mm. as contrasted to a shorter person. And so there's a, there's an implicit bias there. There's even a, uh, uh, the biblical example of when they were looking at all the sons lined yes. up and they saw the tall one and they say, surely this one must be king. But no, they chose David, the runt, and he was the one. Why? Because God doesn't look on appearances. He looks on the heart. And so I think there's even so good biblical backing for how we will look at someone's external appearance make judgments, positive or negative, and either choose that person or pass that person by uh, based on these very shallow, superficial things. Um, there's another example. Uh, I think there's a BuzzFeed video on this. There's a guy whose first name was Jose, and he was applying to all of these jobs online. So he submitted his resume, and of course it has his name, Jose, on it, and to hundreds and hundreds of different places, never got a call back. Well, he Hmm. just he decided to try something. So he took the S out of his name. And so his name read Joe. And Hmm. wouldn't you know it, he got callbacks almost instantaneously Um, and and, and just changing that one letter from Jose, an ethnic sounding name to an ethnic, I I should say a Latino or Hispanic ethnic sounding name because we all have ethnicity um, to Joe, a more American or Caucasian sounding uh, uh, name by ethnicity and the bias because they didn't see this person. He submitted mm. the exact same data on the resume resume. The only difference, the only difference was Jose versus Joe. And we have that implicit wow. bias toward something that sounds quote unquote American and not like an immigrant or a foreigner. And, yeah, so, and it's, it's interesting to note that we do this too. And meaning people of color as well, like we do this related to, each other, you know, so it's not just something that would exist um, on a macro majority to minority people group continuum, but it's also something that we do internally in our own community. So we make jokes about the way someone's name is, you know, like, so for example, you know, with Raven Simone, when she, she oh, called, 
the girl Watermelon Dre or whatever was laughing at her and people were like, that's not funny, right? Like that's right. her name. And when she had Ann Coulter check her of all people, wow. Ann Coulter gets a mention on the Ram podcast in a positive for this <laughs> one singular time. But anyway, so th- just that, that whole context of we see someone and their name is funny. So we kind of make fun of their name or we laugh at it. And, you know, early on in my life, I didn't necessarily like that my name. So so my full name is Gregory Tyler Burns, okay? So people call me Tyler and that was just my preference when I was much younger that they would call me Tyler. Um and I didn't like that name simply because not because there was anything wrong with it, but because it made me sound like I was white. And so when people would talk to me, they would say, oh yeah, your name is Tyler because you're not really black. Right. So mm. it used to, it used to play games with my mind. And mm-hmm. I would say, what are you, what are you talking about? And then the people in my class would have more ethnic sounding names. Um, and so I would adopt that, that, you know, atmosphere of the dominant culture, majority culture within my schooling context and within my, you know, community context and would say, Oh, well, that person's name is funny. Or that person's name must be ghetto or urban or what have you. And they had no control over their name, right? Yeah. Um, so it's just those things that we do internally as well to establish positive or negatives, um, as far as positioning. And, and, and it goes to other aspects of life. For instance, if you see someone walking in, a um you know baggy pants backwards hat right w- what skin color are you thinking of right now <laughs> first of yeah. all that's a yeah. bias and then and then secondly if you do actually see them on the sidewalk or or in your building or whatever what kind are of they a threat exactly exactly what kind of emotions or thoughts spring to mind and 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 I say spring to mind. These are the things when you don't have the filter on, when you're not trying to be politically correct, when you're not trying to quote unquote do the Christian thing. These are the things that implicit bias taps into. It taps into your reflexes, your your thoughts that just jump out without mm-hmm. you. And that you know, I think that that's what the Bible talks about. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so the idea is that what you really believe and what you're really thinking about people, that's the first thing that jumps out before you have a chance to check it, before you have a chance to filter it. Those are the beliefs. Those are the biases that we have to get to, uh, because oftentimes what we're doing is dehumanizing the other. We're dehumanizing Mm -hmm. the other because our biases tend to favor people who are like us, whether that's skin color, economics, education, way they speak, gender, whatever it might be. Social Um, views. Social views, political views. Our biases kind of favor people who are like us so we'll have positive biases positive associations with them but they will be negative toward the out group and a really helpful book for this is disunity in christ by christina Huge. cleveland Dis- require reading Absolutely. you have to read this book she is a uh, social psychologist and she studies basically in group out group behavior in religious circles and why there is so much division from a sociological perspective. And so she talks a lot about bias and, and how it favors people who are like us and how it disfavors those who are different and what we can do about it. I think that's a important part. Like number one, we've got to admit that we all have biases and sometimes they're not good. They're, they're, they're biases. Here's the thing. 
in conversation, when people ask, you know, are you racist or sexist or whatever, of course, we know what we should say and we know what we want to be true about us. We want to be, um, you know, respect the image of God in all people. But the reality is we're sinful and we form judgments based on limited information that are often erroneous. And so the, the implicit part is what's really important. You gotta know what's really there. So I would, I would recommend everybody go to this website, implicit.harvard.edu, implicit.harvard.edu. There's an implicit association test. It's not a perfect test, but it is helpful because there's all mm-hmm. different kinds of tests you can do that goes ageism, racism, sexism. You can take different tests for, and basically it'll show you images, let's say on the race test of a black person or a white person. And it, and you'll press a button about whether you have a, a positive connotation or a negative connotation, but the images mm. flash so quickly. You don't have time to sit there and think, wait, I'm not supposed to have a negative connotation of a black person. Let me wow. choose this one. And so then it'll come up with a score at the end and it'll show, you know, your, your, bias this much toward whites or this much against black. So I'd advise, you know, that's just an interesting test to reveal how, despite our stated affirmations, we can have implicit biases that we really don't want to have. Man, that's really helpful and really good. Now, as we kind of wrap up here, talk to us about how this intersects with the church, because I think this is going to be very important to take it out of the social sphere to take it out of just simply how we would view things, you know, positively or negatively in our day-to-day life, because I think people can wiggle out of those. Yeah. Um, they shouldn't wiggle out of those. We should press into those. Like I'm, I'm thinking about, man, how am I personally biased in certain ways, you know, to people who might, you know, look darker than I am or even to white people or toward them. Right. So, so how does it relate to the church though, especially in the sense of maybe in a reform circle or maybe in a, a, a gospel centered emphasis, is there any implicit bias when there are black speakers or when there are black people who come into church or when there's, you know, certain s- styles of worship or that are different or ethnic specific? How is implicit bias seep into the church and kind of undermine gospel relationship? Great question. I mean, the first thing we have to realize is everyone has biases. And so this is not simply like a white thing that's being imposed on black people. Absolutely. Everybody has biases, whether that's racial or gender or what have you. And since sinners make up the church, make up the congregation in each church, then we have to assume don't 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 ask yourself, do I have biases? Assume you have biases. And then And then the hard work starts. When we assume we have biases, then the work of examining those biases is is what is necessary in the church. So the research has shown that the best way to dismantle a bias is to be aware of it. And th- and and that it could be all that's required is to know that okay, I have a bias against people who look like this. I may not like it. I don't know where it came from, but I don't mm-hmm. want it. And so simply being conscious of that and basically taking the, making the implicit explicit is what is required. Mm-hmm. So if my implicit reaction is negative toward this person or this group of people, then what I have to do is make my thinking explicit and say, wait a minute, 
Why am I thinking this about this person? Am I treating this person as an image bearer of God? Am I treating this person with dignity? Am I treating this person as an individual who may be a great person, may be a horrible person, but I'm going to judge him or her on their own merits? That's what's required to mm. dismantle it. And Christians ought to be, for the sake of love of God and love of neighbor, how can you say you love God but hate your brother? Mm. You have to examine those biases. And like I said, assume you have them. And then think about what people do I gravitate toward? What features do they share? Whether that's physical, social, w- viewpoint, worldview, profession. And that's not bad. We're not saying don't, you know, don't gravitate toward people who are like you. That's natural. But what right. are you doing with the people who are unlike you? Um, how are you engaging with them? Because if all we're doing is imbibing what the culture tells us about certain people, particularly young black males, that's something this reality I deal with daily, um, then we're not actually applying the gospel to our outlook. And that's right. what I think is required. I don't know if that's what you're asking, but that's what I hope believers are doing. Yeah, absolutely. So so I guess to, to summarize, this is the practical outworking of how we get to and people will quote Galatians 3.28. We're, we're all one in Christ, right? Yeah. But this is how we practically walk out being one in Christ is by being aware of maybe some things that are implicit under the surface that we may not understand, that we may not know even existed, but that exist that create barriers for us to actually be one in Christ with people who look um, and talk and worship differently from us. And and that is what Christ modeled so excellently in his life. He modeled everything excellently. But this is one of the things that people just sat up and took notice of because the people that, you know, the 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 insiders, the Pharisees or the people in power, the people who they viewed negatively, Jesus went toward those people. The people whose society had a bias against like prostitutes or lepers or the poor or whomever, he went toward those people. If you look in the Gospel of Mark all over, you'll see this sequence of events. It'll say, Jesus looked and he had compassion. He looked mm. at someone and he had compassion. And I can just imagine that gaze from Jesus. And he's saying, I'm not seeing you just as what society has labeled you. I'm wow. seeing you. What does individual. a compassionate gaze look like? You know, mm. from Christ himself, that gaze alone must have been a transformative wow. experience. And so we're called to to have a similar gauge, gaze and that we look at you not as society judges you or labels you. We look at you as a child of God, as made in his image, and we will interact with you accordingly. And you'll see in all those sequence of events when he looked on them, had compassion, he always has mercy next. There's some miracle that, you know, he heals them, uh, expels a demon, makes their life better in some way. And I think if Christians can model that, looking at people as individuals, image bearers, having compassion on them and serving them in some way, then that's, that testifies to the truth of the gospel. Amen. Amen. So just for clarity— we want to dismantle bias, but we don't want to necessarily dismantle privilege because privilege is something that God has given us to use for the betterment of others. Am I understanding that correctly? <laughs> so, yeah, you know, you're, you're, you're uh, intersecting a couple different terms here, but it's just about stewardship. You know, what, what has God given you? Has he given you a, a place in the dominant culture? Um, 
whether that's racially or economically or gender wise? And how are you using that privilege for compassion, for mercy on people? So I think in that sense, for sure. Excellent. Well, Jamar, this has been very enlightening. Um, we unfortunately are out of time. You know, it, it would be awesome if we just had a radio show every day to where we could talk about these Bo. things. <laughs> Bo's looking at us like, no, no, sir. Um, man, this has been really encouraging. Thank you for doing the hard work of, of working through this. We promise we're going to get back to some more guests here in the coming weeks, but we've just been enjoying interacting with you guys and listening to your feedback, answering some of your questions and defining some complex terms. And hopefully it's been encouraging, as encouraging for you as it has been for us. All right. Great questions. We want to thank you for joining us on this episode of Pass the Mic. As always, you can learn more about the Reformed African-American Network by visiting rennetwork.org. You can follow the network on Twitter at rennetwork, as well as the show at underscore Pass the Mic. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Reformed African-Americans. Pass the Mic is a collaborative effort between the Reformed African-American Network and Podestary Studios. Visit Podesterry.com to discover the highest in quality online audio entertainment. Our producer for this show, as always, was Bo York, and our co-host has been Jamar Tisby. And I've been your host, Tyler Burns, and we'll see you soon on the next Pass Pass the the Mic. Mic. You've been listening to Pass the Mic, a Pottery production. To find out more about this and other shows, visit pottery.com. That's p o d a s t e r y.com. This episode was brought to you in part by the Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.